like thing in life, you achieve more by being consistent. You, the consistency, that's persistence, I think gets you more than just saying one day I'm going to achieve something great. Hey, it's Justin Harvey. Thanks for tuning in to the Anesthesia and Pain Management Success Podcast. With APM Success, we take a close look at important topics pertaining to business, practice management, personal finance, and careers for anesthesiologists and pain management physicians. We work hard to take your critical questions straight to the experts. Thanks for listening. Hello and welcome to episode 162 of Anesthesia and Pain Management Success. I'm very pleased to be joined today by my special guest, Dr. Carlos Archiacati. He's currently a pediatric anesthesiologist in Orlando. He is a man with a lot of different life experiences that I'm excited to draw from today. He's a supporter of medical missions. He's a veteran of the U.S. Navy. He has diverse experience in business leadership as well as the arts. And here he is talking to me. This is awesome. Dr. Archie Katie, welcome. Thank you, Justin. Thank you for having me. So right before we hit record, you were beginning to share a little bit about some of your early military experience. And you're a man who has done a lot of traveling and you described the, the way that the military can perhaps accelerate the learning process in terms of leadership. So can you describe how that unfolded for you as a young physician? Yeah, I mean, when we talk about me seeing myself in a global perspective, it's something that happened very early on in my childhood. I don't know if you remember a little book, it's called The World Almanac, and it had every single country with the, all the stats in terms of the capital city, the population, all that. And by age five or six, I had memorized that whole book. Never thought at that time that I was going to be part of a more global way to deliver uh, healthcare, deliver medicine, which is what I trained to do. So early on, when I finished my internship, I, was, I started as a pediatric resident in Orlando. I already had a scholarship from the Navy who paid for my medical, medical school. And the numbers dropped and they said, you know what, we need to activate you. We need to, you need to report to active duty. So we negotiated different places at the end. Four days before I was going to Iceland, that was my first duty station. They said, you're going to go and meet an aircraft carrier that is already deployed in the Mediterranean and it's on its way to the Persian Gulf. This is during the first Gulf War. This is 1993, just at the very tail end of the, uh, of the war. And here I am, you know, flying into like, you know, the famous Top Gun moving, movie, you know, landing on the flight deck of, of the aircraft carrier. And one of my very first experiences was that I had a patient that got a severe head injury. You think about the aircraft carrier, it's a really industrialized area. You have an airport. In the top, you have two nuclear reactors in the bottom, and then somewhere between seven and 8,000 people at a time. So the, it's a very highly industrialized area, and one of the sailors had a severe uh, head injury. And we don't have CT scan at that point on the ship, so we had to rely a lot of, uh, uh, you know, doing your own assessment in terms of history and physical exam. So I met him in the ICU. And I said, let me just watch. And if I see any deterioration, then we have to kind of fly him off the ship and get into a, a more definite care facility. At that point, we were in the middle of the Red Sea. And he started deteriorating. I said, you know, he needs to go. You know, I don't know. He has a subdural epidural hematoma. And at that point, they said, okay, we have to fly him off the ship. And then you have to negotiate the transfer. So I talked to the uh, hospital in Germany and the Naples Naval Hospital. And I said, let's, and they accepted the patient. 
And suddenly I have to bring this patient from the ship to either Germany or Naples, Italy. And the best way to do it is, you know, of course, we have to fly either through the Saudi Arabia airspace or the Egyptian airspace. And at that very moment, the government of Saudi Arabia closed the airspace for us. So we had to kind of fly another way around to go to actually Egyptian airspace, get into a small port city. And then from there, an air ambulance were going to pick up the patient and transfer the patient over. So in a very, this is my very first week deployed. So imagine that's your very first experience. What is the medical staff like on a, on an aircraft carrier? And what's the experience of a, a medical care provider like? So interesting enough, I mean, we have a surgeon and we have either an anesthesiologist or a CRNA. And then we have medical officer, that was me, that was kind of in charge of the health of, of all our, our sailors and the air wing. The air wing had about 2,500 people to 3,000 people. This is the people that had the planes. We had about 85 had the pilots, you know, the people that were involved in the air traffic control and the air traffic operations, and they operate the flight deck, but also, you know, the maintenance people. So we have a very large contingency. So we had three flight surgeons that came with the air wing and they augmented the flight surgeons. So we were four of them, four of us taking care of the air wing in addition to the, the shipmates, the, 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 the sailors that actually get onto the ship. So we have a medical officer, we have three flight surgeons, we have an administrator, medical officer, which is a, a physician, a surgeon, and a CRNA or a nurse anesthetist, I mean, an anesthesiologist. It's funny that I'm just thinking about surprise billing associated with air ambulances. Like, I'm, I'm obviously, I'm sure that was picked up by our friends in the DOD, but imagine how much it would cost to pause a, you know, a, a mission or whatever and flying around national airspace in order to get to Germany. <laughs> it's, it's a lot of lo very logistically complex in order to accomplish something like so that. It's, it's actually, you know, you think about the cost and then you you talk to probably uh, Dr. Mo Azam and the work that we have done together with the surprise medical billing. So one of the, at least we didn't have a surprise. We have some kind of partners in the area. So one of their partners were actually some hospitals in Saudi Arabia, very well staffed, but, you know, U.S. trained or U.K. trained physicians. And their, their own physicians are outstanding. But then you get the geopolitics on the way, and then you cannot access those because there's some air traffic or, you know, airspace is closed. But so because so many things can go in different directions, you have to give three months salary to that sailor before you actually ship that sailor either, you know, by helicopter or by plane off the ship. So there is definitely a cost associated with that, of course, picked up by the Department of Defense. Well, th this is really interesting. And as we mentioned in the intro, you're a physician with a lot of diverse life experiences. So I'm curious, maybe you can give listeners just sort of a high flying overview of some of the other things that you've done and then zoom in on, you know, at this stage of your career, there's a couple things, a couple sort of topics that you have grown to be most passionate about. So give a little bit of background and then share about what a couple of those things are. Well, I have been fortunate to have uh, a lot of experiences outside medicine. And I, and I think, you know, it's you actually, there's a lot of problem solving that we do in life, in medicine, patients, and career-wise. And it's good to kind of different backgrounds, uh, have that experience, because you learn from the way that you did some problem solving in one area, you can apply it and cross-apply to other areas, including medicine. And there's been many, many of those areas I will have to highlight few of those. Uh, number one, I, I think, you know, the I'm very passionate about the arts and culture. 
been involved with two major film festivals, Sundance and Palm Beach International Film Festival, uh, being, a, being a member of the board. And my specialty was trying to kind of find full feature, uh, full length feature documentaries from around the world about social justice uh, themes. And that was one of my highlights to go to different countries and try to kind of find that those stories to bring to U.S. audiences. And definitely that gave, gave me, a, a, talking about the global perspective, definitely expanded my global perspective, but also a sense of purpose of what we're here for, something beyond medicine that we need to do every day. In addition to that, I think there is something that I'm very passionate about is about involvement in government affairs. I, I, I think I tell people that after 15 years working with members of Congress, advancing different legislation, different advocacy work, came to realize that we do have as individuals and as, as, as citizens, a very powerful voice. And that voice can be exercised by you engaging with your member of Congress, by you engaging with the lo your local leaders and community leaders. And that's can you make a, a difference for the community that you actually serve. And the area that I think that we are lacking a little bit in medicine is formal training in the business aspect of what we do. And I think that was very instrumental for me because when I started my last uh, job at uh, the Children's Hospital, it was very early on that I was tapped to be the you know interim chair and then chairman of the department. And many of the decisions that you may have to have involved some level of knowledge of the business aspects of medicine. And I didn't feel that I have a good grasp on, on, those, uh, on those issues. So I decided to do some executive education and that thing that kind of paved the way to say, well, I just want to do a formalized degree, which I did an MBA and I decided to do this global executive MBA. So over the past two and a half years with COVID, I've been going around the world looking at how business is being done in different continents around the world. There's so much here that I'm curious to know more about. Unfortunately, uh, we're time constrained, but I want to zoom in on a couple of these items. With government affairs, policy, and sort of legislative decision-making, I, I would imagine that is a, a process and a sort of a venue in which there's a lot of work, a lot of pushing towards a goal, a lot of behind the scenes, like not glamorous, very at times it's a slog. And sometimes you work a long time towards a thing only to have your efforts foiled by people who disagree for sometimes like no reason at all other than, I mean, that's politics. So can you maybe give a couple stories that would provide a window into either like a really satisfying moment when you achieve through your participation achieved something exciting or perhaps the inverse as well? The stories go either way. I, I think, you know, you, you kind of learn that you have, I think in life you achieve more by being consistent. The consistency, that's persistence, I think gets you more than just saying one day I'm going to achieve something great. I started my career or my experience with government affairs with different organizations that protected human rights and, and children's rights. So that's what I worked the most. And one of the legislation that I was involved, a couple of them that I felt that I was successful and you had to play with the politics to get to achieve your goals were two. Uh, one was definitely the, the hate crime bill as we know it today. You know, nothing speaks louder than a story. And then that could be a story that you hear from someone, but sometimes it's even more impactful when you use your own personal story 
to convey why this is important to you and why this is important for the community that we serve and why do we need to engage the politicians to make a change. And it took a long time. We have to kind of be creative about putting that legislation attached to a military funding bill, appropriations bill, but we were able to pass. And that's something that is being used today, especially with hate crimes being in the increase. Another one related to that was the don't ask, don't, don't tell repeal. And, you know, you have to kind of, there's definitely two sides, you know, the conservative and the, uh, and the more liberal members of Congress. And you have to speak to them about the messages that they want to hear. So, for example, for the members of the Democratic Party, you know, human rights, you know, the, the equality issues and all that. And, and the members of the conservative party to say this is an issue about military readiness about national security, these people that were separating from the military can actually go with the military secrets and go to a foreign adversary and provide that information to them. So this is not good for us. And it was, I remember when the vote came, I, I, I wasn't sure, we, we felt very confident and the vote was two thirds of uh, the Senate voted in favor. But I can tell you about many setbacks, you know, of legislation that we're trying to pass. I mean, including some of the, uh, in the healthcare reform, you know, there has been so many things that we needed to pass in, in, in one of the most recent ones is to really have reform about the way that we're being reimbursed. And recently I was there in November, we were going to get a 10% cut in the reimbursement for Medicare and Medicaid services, which account now for about 51% of the patients that we see. And we were able to pass a temporary stopgap measure to kind of add it to the budget of last year's budget. But it's still the problem is unresolved. So, but again, I think the setbacks or the things that you don't get accomplished at the beginning, I think is, is what it gives you the energy to continue going. Because at some point, we're going to get it done. Have you found that building bipartisan support for these things has been... A challenge or have you found receptiveness on both sides of the aisle or what has your experience been kind of as you cross party lines? Yeah, I mean, politics is a fascinating aspect that we can be here for a long time talking about that. But I can tell you there's more the spirit of bipartisanship. It is something that you feel when you are doing this work. I think what you see or people tend to see on TV, the interviews and some of the statements that they made, and now we have social media and the engagement with politicians and social media is not what we see when we have one-on-one -on -one meetings. I can be with a member of Congress and a senator talking about something that I know that that member of Congress will not vote in favor, but we have one hour to discuss and they gave me the, the time to discuss these issues. At the end, the, the meeting ended saying, Sorry, but the member of Congress, even the member in him or herself or a legislative assistant said the position has not changed because of the meeting that we just had. But you had the opportunity to convey your message. As I said, you have a voice and you need to exercise that power. And you know that right behind you, there's someone that is going to speak to the member of Congress of the opposite of what you're trying to advance. And But I think this, this spirit of bipartisanship, I think, is pretty. People don't talk much about that. And there's a lot of that happening in DC. That's the reason things, no matter what happens, things get done. Something that has been a, a common thread through the handful of conversations we've had up to this point has been how anesthesiologists are uniquely positioned as leaders. And I think even what you just described, like trying to build consensus among different stakeholders to achieve a goal, they're, they're uniquely suited 
for that job in in different settings. And I'm curious to hear your reflection on your journey because, you know, obviously early on as a a younger physician, you're having these experiences and you're probably, you're sort of in the accumulation of experience mode. You're taking it in and, and being formed and being shaped as a leader. And then eventually at some point you, you developed this zeal to be an influencer, to be giving back, to be shaping the world around you. And I think as a result of a lot of the early experiences. So can you describe kind of how that process unfolded? And maybe if you had either a seminal moment or a season of your life when you started to have the self-confidence required to be more of a, an advocate and less of a, just somebody who's trying to hang on by their fingertips? Well, I think uh, let's, uh, your question had like a two areas. Let's discuss the area about anesthesiologists and leaders, and then we can discuss about what was, what was the trigger for me to be, to give me that strength and energy to, to advocate for those that may not have a voice. So in terms of anesthesiology leaders, I, I think we have so many qualities, both in the in, in healthcare, but even outside healthcare and the business community. And that's something that I discovered that I knew all along, but then with my executive education and going to different business schools, I mean, I, I was fortunate to go to kind of the top-rated business schools, including a global executive MBA. And I started realizing that many of the qualities that they were talking about that, that shaped the, the successful business leaders of today or successful leaders in general are things that are very unique to anesthesiologists. And it's something that I knew, but I never put in the context of within as, as a leader. If you're talking about, you know, we are very innovators. You know, we have to innovate all the time. Many times, if, you know, we have plan A, B, and C, you know, for airway management, pain management, or to induce anesthesia, to do certain procedures in the OR, and A, B, and C fail. So you have to come up with a D and an E, sometimes an F, and that's the one that is successful. So we innovate constantly, and we don't realize about the power of us as innovators. Number two, we always talk about the MacGyver moments, uh, that sometimes we put a piece of, uh, like, a, I have to kind of, how can I give a breathing treatment when I have a circuit attached to it in the tracheal tube, and there's not a device like that, so I have to devise my own one. And, and make it work. So we, we do that constantly. But also you think about a lot of what we do in anesthesiology is vigilance. And when you are in healthcare and when you are in the business of healthcare, and there's a competitive nature of what we do. It's of course, it's a humanistic nature of caring for the people that the communities that we serve, but there is definitely competition, a competitive environment. The same thing with the business environment. It's a very competitive environment. And we like it that way because that's how innovation flourished. And you think about we have so many of those skills about the business. You have to be always watching what the competition is doing to be sure that you give the care that you're giving right now at the level that you're giving or a higher level because the competition is going to do that if you don't do it. The agility. We don't when we give post-transfusions or resuscitating someone in the OR, a trauma victim, you go to certain in the ICUs that put everything in pumps over one or two hours. We we give it immediately. Everything is immediately. So we're very agile and we change. If, you know, depends on the hemodynamics of a patient, we have to kind of change a plan within seconds, sometimes within minutes. So definitely we have that agility that the business community really and the leaders in general you need to have. But also adaptability. 
you know, we have to adapt to different environments as they change. So there's so many things, quality of what define a modern anesthesiologist that I think is very suitable to be not only a leader in any area, including here, but a, a leader in any kind of business venture too. And going to the other question about what kind of prompted me to kind of have that, I think what we were talking before, it was just not an advocacy, but it's just a life mission about helping others. And that was shaped by, I think, probably one of the most moments that have shaped me as a person, as a professional today, was to be a, a transplant recipient and today a transplant survivor. And uh, I have been able to do some podcasts where I have been able to tell my story about I'm about. And so about, so I was diagnosed with a rare type of glaucoma about 22 years ago. Everything was stable until about 2013. So we're talking about nine years ago when things, the disease started affecting my corneas. We still don't know. We think it's kind of, kind of immunologic process. And I had to undergo a lot of cornea transplants. And they lasted for almost five years and everything was fine. I went back to work. Everything was wonderful. And they failed. That was in 2018. Six months later, they failed again. 2019, I received my latest set of cornea transplants. And I think uh, not only having the, the innovative side of what we do and the education that we have, but also bringing the patient perspective, now my own perspective, I think has made me a better, not only person, but also a better professional. And also kind of, kind of taking that advocacy that I was doing for many years to a different level, because now I'm not talking about the stories of others in the community that are being affected. I'm talking about my own personal story. And that is very powerful. We're talking about the film industry, my involvement, and just going around the world trying to find documentaries of social justice to bring it to U.S. audience. What I was bringing is different stories. And the power of a story is something that we undervalue. And when that story is not about others, but it's about your own personal story, it can be very powerful. And how it translated from an advocacy to say, this is just my life mission, I think in part had a lot to do with imagining this period of time. I was blind many times. And I had to kind of learn how to recover. My last time, I took 10 months of indefinite medical leave in order to recover from my last set of transplants. And I have to say, you know, my employer, my teammates in my anesthesiology department, my family, and then everyone was extremely supportive. I would not be here without them. But something that I kind of reflected a lot during that period of time was about the issue of legacy. And what is it? that how can I leave a legacy that I can make a better world that is outside? We talked about OR6 of the patient that I have in my immediate care, something that I can do beyond the OR. And I think anesthesiologists, as professionals, but also as people with the experiences that we have, we're very well suited to have that connection with the communities that we serve outside the walls of the operating room and outside the walls of the hospital. And so one of the things that was very powerful for me is that there you know, many different transplants from many different donors. I decided to find out who were the donors of my last set of cornea transplants. And 
So I contacted the Lions Bank, which is the agency that provided my tissue. And I said, is there any way that I can contact the family of my donors? He said, yeah, there's a way. Just write a letter. We contact them. We ask them if they want to receive the letter from you, establish any contact from you. And I didn't know what to say. I mean, so many things from thank you for changing my life or, or the impact that you, uh, the transformation that you have, that your loved ones have made for me. And I started thinking about legacy. And I think, you know, they passed away in a very early age, one at 20, uh, a young man, 28, 28 years old, a young woman, 46 year old in accidental ways. And now I feel that their, their lives live on through me. And I have a duty, a legacy to honor their own legacy. So it's beyond my own personal legacy, but also their legacies. And, you know, it's a lot of things that we talk about health equity. And that's many of the things that I do in Congress right now is about how can we advance health equity and the way that we're going to do that. And is by getting outside of the boundaries of our own hospitals and really engaging with the community. And in that engagement is something that I always had, but now having the experience of being a patient myself and the legacy that I want to leave not only for me, for, for the, the donors and their families, I, I think that's how transformed from an advocacy to something a little more. Why so passionate? So passionate about this. Something that really strikes me about that sequence of events in your experience is going from, I got to imagine if you're like most other anesthesiologists, I know you got a busy life and clinical schedule and you, you got life happening, it's coming at you. And then being blind changes everything immediately. And all of a sudden you have a lot more time to just think and probably like be anxious and wonder what this means and how long is this going to last? And it's crazy to me that it's happened to you. So this is something that's you've had to go through several times. So can you describe for the listeners a little bit about like, how did that, how did you, I mean, the, the mental sort of process of having to deal with the unknown and kind of sit with that and learn to then kind of persevere is profound. So how, how did, how did you experience that? It was the last time was 10 months. And I think, uh, I, I think first I, I said, you know what, I'm going to take an indefinite leave. I talked to my employer. I don't know when I'm coming back. I'm going to just take my time to heal. This might be a few months. This might be a year. I have no idea. This might never happen. And I think that's just part of my own personal perseverance that I said, you know, I'm going to overcome this. This is not going to be easy, but I'm going to do this. And of course, challenges from mental health to kind of redefining who you are, to not knowing what you're going to be after that. And I think that was part of me kind of going to kind of formalizing my degree of in, as an MBA, because I needed to come up with a, you know, a plan B just in case I couldn't go back to do the clinical work that I love to do. And realizing that in that process, you know, I, it really helped me not only have a purpose, but also help me with my healing process, just having that, that purpose that I'm going to do, I'm going to do something with this. And in 10 months, I was able to kind of reintegrate back to my practice and I'm practicing right now. I'm doing very well, 2020 to 2025, you know, ask for anything more than that. I just saw my doctors last week and, but yes, it was a very difficult process. 
what I think is during that time, I was able to kind of connect with other people with disabilities and not only visual disabilities, but also mobility disabilities, hearing disabilities. I was able to connect with this beautiful community. And part of that engagement with that community led me into something that is my new thing right now is that I was reading the New York Times and I ran into the story about 12 disability ambassadors that went into a zero gravity flight to try to kind of learn and do some research about how can we bring people with disabilities to be part of the upcoming you know, space industry and, and be part of space exploration. Something that if you think about, you know, the astronauts in the 1960s were talking about the right stuff. And, you know, they had to be extremely qualified, both physically and mentally, in order to be considered an astronaut. But right now we have the commercial way to kind of do this. But so how can we do it safely? How can be very inclusive that people with disabilities can have access to the same to space travel and, and, and space exploration? And one of the things that I discovered is that in space, if you think about this International Space Station, there's people from 50 countries, including Russia and the, in the United States, are, you know, of course, a lot of political tensions between them, that they're working in peace and collaboration, and it's a very inclusive environment. So it really inspired me to say, if we can be fully inclusive in space, that should lead us to think that we can be fully inclusive right here on Earth, in all the communities and society in general. And when we talk about this diversity and equity and inclusion movement that we have seen pretty much since the social justice movement in 2020, we have talked about racial inclusive inclusion, you know, ethnic inclusion, LGBT inclusion, gender, and the disability inclusion kind of took a little step back. And I think what I want to do right now is to move it forward, to move it to the forefront. And to let people know the same way that we're talking about, and sociologists are well-suited because they're an innovative state every single day of what they do. People with disability, we have to innovate every single day to, to, to adapt to a world that is not designed for us. So imagine the power that we can bring and experience and, and, and so much richness we can bring to different organizations, both in healthcare and outside healthcare. And so that's one of my new advocacy works that I've been doing. I'm curious, as you've progressed on this path and, you know, when you get thrown into a, a, a new experience that has sort of built in a community of people that associate with that experience, you build relationships with people that you would have never met otherwise. I'm, I'm curious how you kind of walk that out and some maybe a person or two that you met, like in any stage of this life, it could be the disability experience or other parts where you had formative relationships that perhaps you couldn't have foreseen bumping into that person, especially as you kind of, you know, you get older through your 30s and 40s and later, and you don't make new best friends every day. But when you have these types of experiences, you do have those like pretty meaningful relationships that can be forged kind of quickly. So did you have any like that? Absolutely. I mean, I, I would not be here without mentors. And the mentors, you know, there's two different ways that you can mentor someone. You can be an indirect mentor which is by modeling, you know, just people just look at you, the way that you interact with others, the way that you respect others, the way you lead others. That's, that's an, you know, that's a mentor. It's an indirect mentor, but it can be direct mentor, someone that you actually establish a relationship and a connection and you someone that you tap into for advice from time to time. 
And one of my early mentors was uh, the chairman of my department at Johns Hopkins when I was doing my residency, Ed Miller. Dr. Ed Miller went from the chair of anesthesiology to being the CEO of what at that point was Johns Hopkins Medicine, which is a large umbrella that covered the medical school, the research center, the number one research center in, in, in the United States, probably the world, and the hospital system. So we're talking about thousands. I mean, Johns Hopkins is the largest employer in the state of Maryland. So talking about anesthesiologists as leaders. So that's when I saw very early on when I was a resident that anesthesiologists can be actually leaders, can be very effective leaders because of what we bring, the experiences that we discussed before. So what I tell people is that, especially some some residents that might be uh, listening to this podcast, that just to be involved with the, don't see yourself as just part of one department. I, 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 one of the things that I did early on in my department when I was leading the department was to say, I want everyone to be involved in hospital-wide committees. I want anesthesiologists to be visible throughout the hospitals. We're not just only people that just do anesthesia in the operating room. We're part of the whole hospital system. So that's something that I would recommend everyone that is in the early part of their careers or residents to be sure that you are involved, you get outside the OR, you're involved in hospital by committees. I think other type of mentor have been the military side. I mean, I cannot underestimate the influence that being a military leader and a military officer has shaped who I am today, both as a person, as a leader. And I have many mentors, you know, from, you know, generals in the, that, that I worked with, you know, when I was in the tail end of the first Gulf War. And then after that was the Boston War, where I just spent one year right there in the Adriatic supporting missions to protect the ethnic communities in the Balkans. And some of the military leaders, both in the Navy and in other branches of the military, had been mentored that I still tap into today. I was uh, recently in my business class, we have to kind of do one, one assignment, which is interview a person of a strong leader. And uh, so our military leader was the one that we chose. And it was a great experience for me to reconnect and learn again about, and uh, also for the, my classmates uh, to, to, to have that experience too. I want to wrap it up with one more question. For There's a lot of physicians out there, I'm sure, who are kind of on the first half of the continuum that I described where they're learning and growing and having formative experiences, and they're very interested in living lives of influence and leadership and impact. And they want to position themselves for that. But it still feels like they kind of have to flip that switch, so to speak, or or haven't reached that point of, you know, getting through the imposter syndrome or feeling like they're ready, whatever the thing is that's keeping them back. And that's something that I think naturally develops over time to some extent. But what advice would you give physicians who aspire to that kind of impact and want to position for that and want to continue to build into themselves the experiences, the skills, and the personality traits necessary to really leave a kind of legacy that is going to be a worthy one? I think you have to work in both sides, your professional and your personal, and they're very intertwined. You know, you cannot separate one from the other. In terms of the professional side, residents, people that are early in their careers or even late in your careers, pursue some formal business education. I think that will be extremely beneficial for you to be impactful, not only in the, you know, you are in a private practice setting and you are, you're, you're uh, 
in a hospital, a hospital employee or a group practice, whatever that is, I think having those skills are very, very important. And that's something that you can do as executive education. Uh, sometimes, you know, there's uh, your hospital or your employer may have some uh, tuition reimbursement programs that you can use to do this. And that might be a week or two of executive education is extremely valuable and as something that will shape you as a person, as a leader. Another one that we talked earlier, just be involved in hospital-wide committees, just be involved as just being part of the health of the hospital. And the other one, which is I think is what is important as a person and also as a physician is to just get outside the walls of the hospital, get engaged with the community. I think, you know, you change the world by course, changing and, and, and doing that for you, the people that are in your immediate reach or for the patients that you serve, your own children, your family, your spouse, your parents, and your, your family. But once you achieve that level, reach out to the community. Because what we're going to see healthcare in the future is going to be this interface between the community and the hospital. And more is going to be done probably outside of the hospital walls. That's the only way that we're going to achieve health equity is by doing that. And uh, another aspect about that is I, you know, as a, somebody that's passionate about the arts and culture, just bring that element into to you. I mean, that is enhancing and nurturing your humanistic side. I think it's something that increases the level of being able to connect with your patients and to develop that level of compassion. Art is, uh, I think, that glue between how you as a person, a professional, can actually impact another life. I think, you know, some, those, those, uh, I think there's a very, some of my advice for people that they're trying to say, how can I be of impact? To others. I mean, it started by just developing yourself personally and professionally. Awesome. Dr. Carlos Archia Katie, thank you very much for your time today. It's been a pleasure speaking with you on APM Success. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for the invitation. If you liked what you heard this week, head on over to apmsuccess.com, where you can find more content and free resources to help you build a successful career in anesthesia and pain management. If you wanted to leave a review in iTunes, I'd also really appreciate it. Thanks for using some of your valuable time to join me today on APM Success.